welcome back to another episode of Undercover. I'm Yusuf Saudi and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 4. In today's episode, we'll be looking at the world of digital misinformation on broader health as well as COVID-19. We'll also be continuing on from the previous episode, digging deeper into how Australians have been affected by the AstraZeneca vaccine, particularly for those over 50 who are now eligible to receive the shot. We'll then further delve into the lives of culturally and linguistically diverse communities and how the vaccine rollout plan is reaching them. Without further ado, onto our first story. Wellness influencers and lifestyle gurus are finding themselves in positions of power across social media. They've been afforded more trust and intimacy with their audiences than ever before. The wellness industry is now an online sensation. Followers of influencers and social media personalities have turned to them for information and advice on a range of health concerns, despite these so-called gurus having little to no credentials. James Kleeman has more. Hey guys. Hi guys. I am back. In today's video, I'm going to be sharing with you my top five favorite products that you can include into your life to help better yourself in 2021 and onward. I just had a Ayurveda specialist come on the podcast. The episode now, hasn't aired yet, but she told me how important it is to, to help better yourself in 2021. It's seemingly everywhere, from exercise regimes to diet pills and essential oils. Advice on how to live a healthier, happier life is not hard to come by on social media. This advice, more often than not, however, comes at a cost. Former social media influencer and self-proclaimed wellness guru, Belle Gibson, rose to prominence in 2013 after claiming she had survived terminal brain cancer by rejecting conventional medicine in favor of a healthy diet and regular exercise. A young, beautiful woman gets given the terrible news she has inoperable brain cancer and only four months to live. The courageous Belle Gibson tries chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but no luck, so turns to alternative medicine to battle the disease. Thankfully, it seems to work, as she tells the world through social media. It's a truly inspiring story. Hundreds of thousands of sympathetic followers and fellow sufferers live every step of her journey and celebrate her success as she becomes the poster girl for the alternative wellness industry. In 2015, Gibson was exposed as a fraud after revealing that she in fact never had cancer. She was ordered to pay over $400,000 for her misleading claims and false donations to charity, a portion of the $1 million worth of profits made from her app and recipe book. Those that bought into Gibson's journey, following her advice every step of the way, were left stranded, some in critical medical condition. Native experts like Gibson, those with knowledge native to their town or upbringing, but have no medical experience whatsoever, readily offer quick-fix solutions like detoxes and cleanses to complex health problems. The techniques used by wellness influencers to foster trust and intimacy with followers are particularly dangerous. Native experts online are understandably popular. What people don't understand is that the relationship online, which begins by a friendship relationship, I will help you, I'm your friend, very soon boils down into a money relationship. You are asked to give money to get specialized knowledge, specialized training, which you have to pay for, which again is not verified by any external source. Chris Rojek is a professor of sociology at the City University of London 
He's authored a number of books on the rise of lifestyle gurus. What comes through when you look at the lifestyle guru material is that the audience overwhelmingly consists of lonely people. With no commitment to science or evidence-based medicine, wellness influencers are free to construct online personas which appeal to and prey on a vulnerable follower base who come to view influencers as friends and motivators. These are people who are in um, positions of jeopardy, really. They can't solve their own problems. They don't have friendship or family networks to, solve, to help them solve their own problems. And so they look to strangers and invest emotional, intimate relationships with people they don't know and people they will actually never know on a face-to-face basis. Here lies yet another significant danger. With wellness influencers presenting themselves as an authentic alternative to medical professionals, people's trust in experts and institutions has faded. Purva Gugliani is a Melbourne-based dietitian. She is often left to pick up the pieces after her patients are lured in by alternative treatments online. Nowadays, there's so much misinformation that I feel everybody that I see in my practice, everybody would be a little, I, I would say 90% of the people that I see in my practice would have some pre-notion about a particular food when they come and talk to me. And they would definitely mention that, okay, you know, uh, this is what we saw there. The quick fix remedies offered by wellness influencers are a stark contrast to the slow, practical solutions that doctors and dietitians recommend. See, everybody in this world is looking for instant gratification and is looking for some instant results. When they come to us, we talk to them about science. We talk to them about evidence-based information. We talk to them about the slow journey, the practical journey, you know, that it would take. We do not give them any false hope, so we do not show them those, that rosy picture. The trust placed in wellness influences over professionals for fast and easy results is alarming. What is equally alarming is the relative ease by which this information spreads. The online phenomenon of social media gurus is unregulated, essentially. You can get Bell Gibsons popping up all around the world, giving their view about whatever problem you have. And it's extremely hard to police that or actually to stop people who are giving bad advice from continuing to give it because we don't have a global mechanism for policing the internet. We can't actually do it. Social media is now a breeding ground for alternative facts and misinformation. Where we get our information and who to trust, particularly when it comes to our health and well-being, is now a serious concern. That was James Kleeman on social media misinformation. In this confusing time, it's incredibly important for citizens to get the correct information, especially when it spreads as quickly as it does on the internet. But as we know, that's not always the case. So what exactly are online platforms doing to deal with the rampant misinformation on COVID-19? Coronavirus information has spread rapidly, particularly on YouTube. But what happens when important updates on COVID-19 is demonetized or taken from such a widely used platform? Does this contribute to the misinformation or does it actually prevent it? Reporter Georgia Barry looks into whether or not YouTube's demonetization policy has encouraged the spread of COVID-19 misinformation or reduced it. It seems just the phrase coronavirus is instant demonetization. 
For today's video, I won't be directly commenting on the recent health-related news because A, I'm not a medical professional, and B, I don't need my video demonetized. Even if your video has nothing to do with the coronavirus or COVID-19, in the short term, your content still may be demonetized. Video hosting platform YouTube has been demonetizing independent creators' videos related to coronavirus since the beginning of 2020. In March last year, YouTube announced that they would be removing ads with videos about coronavirus in line with its advertising policy. We're updating our guidelines to reflect the coronavirus outbreak as a sensitive event and as such, all videos focused on this topic will be demonetized until further notice. YouTube is a place that allows independent creators to flourish online as they can build their own brand through gaining subscribers and eventually earn a stable income. Therefore, when a creator's video gets demonetized, especially more than once, there's reason to be concerned. So why is this an issue? Well, first we need to know what demonetization is. It is when independent creators are denied paid advertisements in their video and therefore lose revenue and have a reduced income from the platform. This all started when YouTube classified coronavirus as a sensitive event, meaning that any content passing more than a mention of coronavirus would not be monetized. The only YouTube channels that were allowed to talk about the pandemic and still earn money were news channels. YouTube's sensitive events policy was created to protect advertisers from being associated with videos about sensitive and confronting topics, such as mass shootings, terrorist acts, armed conflicts and a global health crisis like coronavirus. This policy was also a way for YouTube to fight coronavirus misinformation and to stop being blamed for the misinformation reaching the public. It's not a new thing that they are moderating content, but with COVID, you know, so much going up all the time. Some of it is harmless. Some of it is potentially life-threatening. Uh, and some of it is people trying to debunk myths and help. So some of it's going to get caught up in the, the moderating process. Dr. James Kite is a lecturer at the University of Sydney who specialises in mass media and social media campaigns and how public health ideas and messages are communicated to the general population. So I can certainly understand the policy because of the volume of work and the fact that so many people had to be working from home rather than in you know, YouTube offices. From what I understand, they, they relied a lot on bots to do this kind of work. And when you're relying on, on machines to decide what is and what isn't accurate, there's always a, gonna be a risk that you're pulling down the wrong things and you're leaving up things that you should be pulling down. While the intentions behind the policy are moral, the automated process proved to be too sensitive of an algorithm to prevent the spread of coronavirus misinformation, as many videos debunking coronavirus conspiracy theories and vaccine misinformation were demonetized. Psychology and news analysis YouTuber Chris Boutte uploaded a video called Debunking Insane QAnon COVID Conspiracy Theories to his channel The Rewired Soul. A week later, YouTube removed the video and cited the COVID-19 medical misinformation policy. YouTube told online media company Business Insider that this was due to an internal glitch. However, when Chris Brute tried to appeal the decision, it was denied. So my video was debunking a video that's telling people not to wear masks and not to social distance. What's crazy about this is that that 
video from QAnon is still up, even though my video was saying that it was wrong. So this is saying that my According video to the 2020 Transparency Report, YouTube received 325,439 appeals between the months of April and June in 2020, in which 160,621 of those videos were reinstated. However, YouTube has begun to acknowledge the need for an alternate method to monitor content, as Chris Boutet's video is now back on his channel. Unfair demonetization of YouTube videos has been a major issue for a long time, and due to the pandemic, this was enhanced to the public eye even more so. So, how do we do better? How can we spread public health information in a more constructive and conducive way, while also preventing the spread of misinformation online? Yeah, that's a real fine balance between knowing when to respond and then when you respond. It's how do you respond? How do you shape your response? What do you emphasize? What do you play down? Do you need to go on the attack about it? Is that going to be helpful or not? All these sorts of questions start to come into it. I do have some sympathy for, for, for YouTube. It wouldn't be easy for them. You know, you've got thousands of hours of video being upload to, uploaded to YouTube every second to be able to respond perfectly every time, you know, new videos about COVID would be difficult. As far as YouTube goes, ensuring that the mediation of content isn't fully reliant upon an automated process and that the algorithm isn't so sensitive where someone mentioning the word coronavirus leads to their content being demonetized would ensure that the educational and factually correct COVID content stays on the platform. We've got to be realistic about pandemics and that although COVID is a unique situation, it's not an unpredictable situation. So we've had test runs with SARS and with MERS and bird flu and swine flu. So we know, we know these sorts of things are going to come. And so when that situation does pop up, we can start to do the kind of research preparation work that you need to do using these other examples, using what we know about infectious diseases and, and how people respond to them, how the public responds to them. That was Georgia Barry with the story. The rollout of COVID-19 vaccines hit trouble in Australia during mid-April. This was when Janine Norris, a woman from New South Wales, passed away from blood clots just days after receiving the AstraZeneca shot. With only citizens over 50 recommended to get this vaccine now, reporter Sean Mortel looks at how this is impacting the Australian public. Channel 9 news reporter Brett McLeod has seen a lot of the world's biggest events in his life. But it doesn't mean he's excited to have a needle put in his arm. On Monday, Brett will get his first shot of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine, which was originally one of the two preferred COVID vaccines in Australia. The AstraZeneca vaccine has come under intense scrutiny in Australia due to the occurrence of serious blood clots as a side effect. Despite this fear, Brett is looking forward to getting the vaccine. No one gets excited about getting a needle stuck in your arm. Wouldn't matter if it was the COVID vaccine or uh, getting a flu shot. But I'm really, I'm just imagining what it's going to be like after I've had the shot. And I think there'll be some sense of relief that it's the beginning of the other side of this. In the past couple of weeks, the Therapeutic Goods Association, otherwise known as the TGA, has confirmed there have been six cases of blood clotting as an adverse reaction to the AstraZeneca vaccine in Australia. It also includes the death of 48-year-old Janine Norris, who experienced severe blood clotting just days after receiving the vaccination. 
but the alarming media coverage surrounding the AstraZeneca vaccine hasn't swayed Brett, who is still adamant that he will get the shot when he can. I've had a lot of friends ask me, would I get the vaccine or is it safe to get the vaccine? I always say, well, sometimes you need to speak to a GP about it, speak to your doctor because a lot of people have underlying conditions where they need to get proper medical advice. I'm no doctor, I'm just a journalist. But I always say for me, as soon as the vaccine started to become available overseas, I said, I will get one as soon as I can. But it's not the same scenario for all Australians. Since this week, Australians over the age of 50 are allowed to receive the AstraZeneca vaccine, while those under 50 must wait for the alternative Pfizer option. This hasn't helped 66-year-old Lucia Calvisi, who has been left stranded in isolation and can't get the AstraZeneca vaccine because she has fibromyalgia, a medical condition that can cause autoimmunity. and the osteoarthritis that I have, um, my mobility has suffered a great deal. Like, I have to use a, a mobility scooter even in my home now. But no, there's, I can't, I don't know any other way other than getting the vaccine. The condition is yet to be recognised as a disability by the Australian government, meaning Luja has no choice but to stay at home. While other people around her age slowly begin to try the AstraZeneca vaccine, Luja will have to wait and ponder an alternative that isn't too risky. Look, I think if they had offered the Pfizer to everybody, I probably would have gone and, and had it done. It, it is just specifically the AstraZeneca, the fact that apparently it's okay for over 50s but not under, which makes no real sense to me, and that I don't trust the government or anything they say. But according to Dr Robert Boy, who is a professor of paediatrics and child health at the University of Sydney, the move to only allow those over 50 to get the AstraZeneca vaccine is smart. It's a sensible way forward. Only time will tell what the safest will be. There are some people over 50 who get side effects, but they're uncommon. So it's a, a reasonable approach to say, let's cover the people who are most likely to die from COVID, that is people over 50, with a vaccine that uh, is safe and effective. When looking at the statistics, Dr Boy's point holds up. From the evidence we have been able to gain so far, you're much less likely to experience a blood clotting condition if you are over 50 and get the AstraZeneca vaccine to avoid contracting the coronavirus. So if you contract COVID, you're probably close to 10 times more likely to have uh, a clot as a complication than if you have the, the vaccine. So it is much safer to be vaccinated than to have the disease. According to Dr. Boy, in one year, a woman has a risk of more than one in 2,000 of having a serious clot while on the oral contraceptive pill. But just because it is actually much safer for people to get the AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't mean that it's the right move for everyone. Luja's greatest concern lies in the age limit sitting at 50 for the vaccine and what the reason behind it may be. It, well, it hasn't been explained well. Why is it okay for over 50s and not for under 50s? Or is it just that we are more expendable? Because from my experience, again, of this government, we are to them. 
The age barrier question appears to be the biggest one plaguing those who are nervous about getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. The answer lies in thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome, otherwise known as TTS, a syndrome often inflicted by the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's the cause of the blood clots that have been reported, and it is a condition that drops in occurrence for those over the age of 50. Also, there is a much higher chance of serious outcomes arising if a person over 50 contracted COVID-19, meaning it is safest to vaccinate them for maximum benefit. So when you next consider getting the AstraZeneca jab, it may be best to research whether it is a risky move or in fact the safest option for your health. That was Sean Mortel with the story. Let's turn our attention now to a community that hasn't made headlines as much in mainstream media. In early February, Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced that the government will give all Australians the opportunity to be vaccinated by October this year. This includes Australian citizens, permanent residents, as well as most visa holders. This covers refugees and asylum seekers. But it's uncertain how many refugees and asylum seekers have actually received the COVID vaccine so far. I spoke to Claire Lottonen, who is the co-convener of the University of Melbourne branch of Academics for Refugees, for her take on the refugees and asylum seekers' experience of the rollout. How has the access been for vaccinations and refugees and asylum seekers? Uh, well, non-existent from what I know. I mean, I, I stand to be corrected with all the, the, the knowledge that I have um, to date is that, uh, well, we know the vaccine rollout, rollout is, is been very slow in Australia. From what I've been told by people who are on temporary visas in Australia at the moment who have come from places like Nauru and PNG, they have been given no information at all. And does that also include, like, those in bridging visas as well? Absolutely. So we're looking at people in detention. Uh, some of those, of course, as we know, are not necessarily refugees, but people who have had their visas cancelled for a whole range of reasons, and that's an, another story I won't go into here. But um, but aside from that, there's people in on bridging visas, temporary visas. Um, this includes a, a, a number of, of refugees who have been found to, be, to have refugee status. Yeah, and do you know how many refugees and asylum seekers have received vaccines or? I don't think any. I don't think any have received them. Now, there, there may be some have, but I'm not aware of any, any refugees or asylum seekers or people on bridging visas who have received the vaccine. This is despite a statement um, in February this year where um, it was stated that the people on, on visas um, and people, refugees would still be eligible for the vaccine. And I guess with that, why do you think it's important to vaccinate refugees and asylum seekers in Australia? Well, there's a number of reasons why it's really important. One, um, they're living in a really precarious situation to begin with. A lot of them are, are living um, day to day. They don't have access to government support. They're having to find their own level of income. So they, they're in um, living in difficult circumstances. Many of them have um, prior health conditions, so they might have um, other comorbidities that might make them particularly vulnerable to the, to the, the, the infection, including sort of heart disease, asthma, um, other conditions, diabetes. So they're one of the, the, the more high-risk groups. If we're going to look at sort of people like those in aged care and those working in the health system as high-risk, refugees would certainly fall into that category as well. And lastly, um, if they've got any prospect of resettlement in a country that's willing to take them and give them a chance at a meaningful, productive life, then 
uh, having a vaccine is going to be really important for them to gain entry to another country that might give them protection. That was Claire Lottenen discussing the COVID-19 vaccine rollout for refugees and asylum seekers. There's more to come in this investigation in a future Undercover episode, so stay on the lookout for that one. At the beginning of this episode, we explored digital misinformation and how online platforms are handling this challenge. In this next story, we'll be looking at another way that people have been trying to seek the correct information about COVID-19. Many Muslims have turned towards their community faith leaders for advice about coronavirus misinformation. So how are these leaders handling the confusion of those who trust them? Should there be concerns about the reliability of the guidance they provide? Reporter Shamsia Husseinpour has the story. When it comes to religion and science, there has always been some sort of conflict of how one weighs more than the other. The medical book is a book of science and the book of God is a book of science. And this is probably why many faith members of the community have turned towards faith leaders for advice or signs of what to do and where to go regarding the misinformation on COVID-19 vaccines. So often we, we go to a religious leader or to a sheikh or to a start or someone because we have a decision to be made on something that we can't understand or is beyond our comprehension. And so, you know, it's, it's out of respect that we'd seek their judgment or advice. Tasteem Chopra, a cross-cultural consultant who also works at the Department of Health and the COVID Response Unit, is concerned about people seeking advice from faith leaders regarding this issue and says people shouldn't go to religious leaders for advice unless the religious leader happens to have medical qualification. When we're seeking advice about whether to pursue a medical procedure or a medical course of action, however, um, that's not the skill set of the sheikh. They're not medically qualified, unless they happen to be a doctor, or in this case, an infectious disease specialist and a sheikh, which I have not yet come across, um, then I think fine. But to be seeking medical knowledge from a sheikh when you have uncertainty about issue is, again, is in my estimation, a wrong move to make. Mrs Chopra says the matter is always complex because not everyone understands science. So when there is a lot of contradicting information going around, it causes confusion. Often in communities, people might rely on a figurehead or someone prominent for their information source. And while that's well intended, it can be misguided. And what I mean by that is if your car breaks down, you wouldn't go to a florist, um, you'd go to a mechanic. So you have to be conscious about who you're seeking your information from. And just because someone has a loud voice doesn't mean they're always right. Just because someone is popular or high standing in the community doesn't necessarily mean they have the scientific background and the medical skills or qualifications to make a statement. There are many conspiracy theories going around in the community, especially now during Ramadan gatherings. Some are arguing that COVID is all hoax, while others are spreading misinformation about the vaccines and how unsafe it is. This is where faith leaders have stepped in. The first principle we apply in Islam is that as Allah Azza wa Jalla commands us, don't use information unless you know that information and how valid that information is. Um, advise people to go to the sources of the information and get the information from the, the right places. While Mrs Chopra is concerned with people choosing faith leaders over medical professions to seek advice, Abdunur Wali, an imam from the Islamic Council Victoria, is more concerned about the fact that people come to him not to seek advice, but to convince him that the misinformation is somewhat true. The issue is people don't think they have misinformation. People think they have information. 
and they come to you to tell you what they think is the right information. It's unfortunate that people don't think they have misinformation. They think they have the right information and they try to convince you that they have the right information. During the pandemic, the number of worshippers decreased. But in the holy month of Ramadan, the numbers were doubled again. People attended mosques not only to worship, but also to break their fast with the rest of the community. Faith members like Imam Weli took this opportunity to remind people about the purpose of Ramadan, and that is avoiding gossip and preaching nothing but the truth, in hope to help people rethink about their misinformed judgment about the vaccines. We advise is that contributing to the misinformation is a serious problem in our religion. So you may think you are just saying your opinion, but when you're spreading misinformation, whether that is for or against either, that is not right. You have to remember whatever you say will be recorded against you. And the least you can do for yourself is that make sure that what you say has got foundation. Imam Weli is concerned about people's false judgment and says people of faith shouldn't believe what they hear. The Quran teaches people to not only be truthful about what they preach, but also to think and reflect about the things that they preach. When you read the Quran, Allah always asks us to think, to reflect, to analyze. Allah never asks us to use or to take his words, even his words, the absolute truth. The first thing I will ask, use reason. Before you come on some sort of conclusion, Allah Azza wa Jalla says in one of the surahs, I'm only advising you to stand as individualists or as Kabbalists to people, think and reflect. And that's all I'm asking our community. Imam Weli advises people to be truthful and seek expert advice instead of believing what people say in chats or groups. Use your mind. And when, it's, when you use that reason, Get the information from the experts. Don't get the information from the community. Don't get the information from Facebook or from WhatsApp groups. Imam Weli constantly recites a verse from the Quran as a reminder to people who are confused. If this is not your field, ask the people who specialize in this area. I get the information from them. That's my advice to our community and to everybody who is listening. In today's episode, we explored the challenges of digital misinformation and whether the actions that online platforms have taken is helpful or harmful. We spoke to a few older Australians about how delays and confusion about the vaccine rollout plan have affected them. We also looked at how culturally and linguistically diverse communities like refugees and Muslims have been affected, gaining an insight into their experiences with navigating COVID-19 information. If you want to reach us, please feel free to leave a voice message on 9018-5005 or contact us on our Twitter at cover underscore podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Undercover is brought to you by RMIT Journalism. Thank you to our reporters, James Kleeman, Georgia Barry, Sean Mortel and Shamsia Hussainpour. This episode was produced by Chisa Hasigawa and a special thanks to our executive producers, Tita Ambio, Janak Rogers and Zoe Daniel. We'll be here next week with episode 5. I'm Yusuf Saudi and we'll see you later.